Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest here in South Africa and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all in a concise, informative update. It's Monday, the 26th of February. Coming up on the program, we'll interrogate the ANC's big jobs promise. Will e-toll gantries be switched off? Why young South Africans are giving up on politics, it seems. The impact of proposed cuts to state doctors' overtime pay here in Gauteng. And what is the era of slow living? It's been a big weekend of political promises from the African National Congress saying it will create 2.5 million work opportunities in the next five years if it wins the May 29 election. The party says, and I quote, it will engage and direct financial institutions to invest a portion of their funds in industrialization, infrastructure development and the economy through prescribed assets. So how much of this is practical and how much of it is hot air? How much of this have we heard before? Professor Susan Boyson is with us now, leading the program with the Witz School of Governance. Professor, a very warm welcome. Do you believe the ANC's plan that it can create these work opportunities over the next five years or so? Jeremy, good afternoon. Well, it is um, a possibility, but if one counterbalances that with the ANC's general struggle to achieve its promises. Um, One in principle has to be a little sceptical but then also this is job opportunities that they're talking about. That means entry level basic orientation and whether that actually converts into formal jobs and jobs that really make a difference in the economy, that is an entirely different matter. But then it does create small income streams for new entrants. And we've heard, for example, they may be in roadworks or in a few of those areas. And that is certainly a great field in which people may be fruitfully employed. But just as such and as at face value, we would certainly want to see these job opportunities realized. So in in many respects, yes, and this is a restatement, a slight amplification of many things that we have heard before. Professor, the party goes on to say it will engage in direct financial institutions to invest a portion of their funds in industrialization, infrastructure development and the economy through prescribed assets. How do you think that's going to go down with the financial institutions themselves? There is a level of risk attached here. 
Yes, certainly, Jeremy, yes. We have heard on over several years from the time of previous ANC policy conferences, and especially the last one, that this is in the offing, the offing that they are considering it. Um, it is, I don't think it will be received well if it had been guarantees that these investments will go into truly constructive above board projects I don't think there would have been much resistance to it but if it goes among others um, to state owned enterprises we know what happens to money that is kind of bottomless pits and that money often gets funneled in there and we do not see much of a return for those kind of investments and I believe that is what financial sector may very well be resisting very strongly Professor, we know that we've got a high budget deficit. We know that we've got almost uncontrollable state debt, yet the party also says it wants to capitalize on a sovereign wealth fund. Again, do you think that this is a starter? This is also something which we see um, from several sources as one of the possibilities that is being put into the mix when South Africa really, when the fiscus is running pretty dry and they need all kinds of innovative ways to look into that and to to compensate for that. And the wealth fund could help. Again, it is the credibility and legitimacy of ANC government at this point of the game. Whether they have enough of that legitimacy, credibility in running and working with big capital funds, ensuring there are good returns on it, it is that big struggle for credibility that the ANC has to conquer, and that could be a big mountain, never mind one of the hills mm. that the ANC also in the same manifesto quotes Nelson Mandela on many hills that still have to be conquered. I think that is a big mountain that ANC will have to conquer. They would really have to work very closely with the financial sector to establish the necessary credibility. And that same argument can be applied, I imagine, to its intention to start a public banking sector. Indeed, indeed. That public bank is state bank is also an idea that has been coming from a within the ANC over several years. And we see wherever these initiatives in South Africa, provincial level, for example, have been tried, it has not worked out well. And so it is exactly, you put your finger on it, that kind of credibility that the ANC unfortunately does not enjoy at this state of the game. And that's where I become very concerned about this current election manifesto, where the basic thrust of so much of the argument seems to be you have to vote for the ANC because we are the ANC. ANC is ANC, and it has been in government for 30 years because it hasn't unpack that systematically and look at the uh, veracity of mm. each of those components. I'm going to leave it there, Professor Susan Boyson from the Witt School of Governance. Thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Now, here's a question. Have e-tolls actually been switched off or are they about to? The Gauteng Premier has his hand on his heart. Arch Detractor, the organization undoing tax abuse, Chief Executive Wayne Duvenage, says he doesn't believe it or the assertion that Gauteng motorists will be refunded for paying their e-toll bills. Wayne Duvenage is with us now. And first up, do you believe the gantries will or have been deactivated? 
No, I don't. The plan is, they said, by the 31st of March. I don't believe that's going to happen as well because there's far too much confusion uh, on this matter now. Where is the confusion? Well, we hear uh, from the recent announcement that Roy Cocaine reported on during the lockdown with Treasury on uh, before the budget speech. The question was asked, you know, where is this funding and how is it going to take place? And now we're hearing that, you know, there's still a plan to go and collect funds from motorists, ETOLs, which Senral is the only uh, entity that does this. They've stopped summonsing in March 2019. You know, we're heading to five years later. And if there's no enforcement mechanism in place, which there isn't, other than uh, going about civil claims and summonses, then you can't collect. Ninety uh, percent of the public are not paying. It's There's prescribed debt. It's been going on for far too long now, the non-payment. And they're never going to be able to suck what is outstanding from Eton Motorists out the economy. It's just not going to happen. So to hear Treasury telling the public that, well, this is still a mechanism of financing, when in October in 2022, 18 months ago, they've announced that ETOLs is not the mechanism they're going to use to pay for the infrastructure. It is just becoming so confusing, Jeremy, that uh, we really now need clarity. And then you've got Panyaza Lusufi saying, we're going to refund those who have paid. Then he says, no, I didn't say that. Well, he did. He's on record as saying that. And they have to pay 30% of the outstanding debt for the upgrade. There's just so much out there. The numbers all differ. We don't know what's going on. How do you interpret that confusion, Wayne? Is it simply a sign of desperation from the Treasury, do you think? I think it's a sign of, firstly, people not coming together, those in authority, and when I say people, to finally lay out the plan on what they're going to do going forward. We thought we had that in October 2022 when Gordon Guana, the minister, announced the end of tolls from a funding point of view for the Gauteng Freeway Improvement Project and that this was going to be done via a combination of Treasury, 70% and 30% from the Gauteng province. They had to work out that funding mechanism between them, and it's now 18 months later, and it sounds like they still haven't got clarity on that. Gauteng, as we know, is broke, and secondly, is 85 to 90% funded by Treasury anyway. So whether it comes from Treasury via Gauteng, it's neither here nor there. But we must always remember that the debt was entered into between Sanral and the Department of Transport, who are, by the way, very silent on this because everyone who's doing the talking is Treasury and uh, and the province when it's actual debt that Sanral entered into when they built these roads and decided uh, through the Sanral Act to introduce tolling on Gauteng's roads. These are their roads. And we've also said, why is Gauteng paying for and, and agreeing to maintain Sanral's roads? They're not on Gauteng's assets register. So, it again, more and more confusion reigns, and I think this is just a sign of, a, of people in positions of authority who are unable to make a final decision and then implement that decision. If you can't implement your own decisions, well, then we have this confusion and this never-ending saga on ETOLs. So silence from the Department of Transport. What is Sanrel saying about this? Nothing. Nothing. They're looking. Uh, and, you know, when we go back to t- 2008, uh, right up until 2015, it was Sanral who did all the talking. It was Sanral who convinced government this is the way to go, who got the finances and who forced this issue onto the public. Now they are silent. I mean, obviously, at the time, it was Nazir Ali. It was his plan. He was desperate to make it work. He's since left. 
and everybody's looking at the Department of Transport and the Treasury to say, well, what are you guys going to do? Well, actually, Sanron needs to take the bull by the horns. They need to finalize this deal and they need to go to Treasury and Department of Transport and say, let us implement this decision once and for all because they're the only ones who know who owes what. And when you start talking about going back to the public to finance, uh, to pay for the ETOL bills, you have to have Sanral in that discussion. And when you ask them, what are you doing about collecting this debt from the motorists? They will tell you that they're doing nothing. They are, they are billing the 10% or 15% or so who are paying, and that's it. They send out letters of demand every now and then. Some people pay, but by large, uh, 85 to 90% of people are not paying, and the debt keeps uh, mounting, the so-called debt, which most of it now is prescribed. Who is still paying voluntarily, I wonder? It's the mainly the car rental companies, the fleet companies, and some companies who just don't want to step out of line with governments and laws. So they will pay. They'll pass these costs on to the uh, consumer, their customers. Uh, so they don't, aren't really effectively paying. It's you and I, the customers, uh, who use the logistics companies who are still paying. But not even government departments, Jeremy, are paying. Not even government departments. Most of them are broke anyway. So it's crazy that government departments aren't paying their retail bills, and yet some companies are. And we've been saying for some time now, if these last 10 to 15% of the people that are paying just stopped paying, it would force government to make their decision a lot quicker. But for now, the 40 million rand and a month that they're collecting on e-tolls, well below the 300 million, is paying off for the collection process. All they're doing is paying for the people to collect the money. It's an administrative process. And uh, the sooner we end that, uh, the quicker I think we'll force government to implement their decision. And while all of this is happening, of course, our roads continue to deteriorate. Yeah, they do, you know, but national road funding is done by a combination of treasury grants to Sanral as well as their own e-tolling mechanisms. A lot of them work around the country. Those 100% collection rates when the boom doesn't lift until you pay. Very different to an electronic tolling of drive now, pay later, which has failed. But they get their funding uh, from, from treasury and their e-tolls and then treasury funds the provinces to fix their roads. The sad reality is that most of those provinces do not fix the roads with that money. They spend it and misspend it in other areas, which is why the potholes get bigger. And then at local government level, they're supposed to collect money from the ratepayers and fix the potholes, water leaks, traffic lights, and so on. And they don't do that either. Badly managed. I'm not saying all of them, but many of them. And Joburg City and Ekurileni are two mm. massive uh, cities that are failing in this regard. All right, Wayne Divanage, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Well, I don't need to tell you we are racing helter-skelter to the May 29 election. And while voter registration is closed, there is growing concern over youth voter apathy. And I want to explore that in a little detail with Enza Kutle Sabella, who's a third-year journalism student at the Durban University of Technology and has written both elegantly and critically about the subject. Enza Kutle, a very warm welcome. What do you think the main reasons behind this perceived voter youth apathy is? Uh, good day, Jeremy, and good day to the listeners at home. Um, very happy to be here. I think the main reasons behind this youth voter apathy label label are older generations are quite quick to dismiss the potential that young people possess. So young people nowadays and young people many years ago are two very different groups. So the younger generation nowadays aren't as involved in politics compared to the youth of 76, for example. Times are changing, and I believe that the youth of today are just a product of their time. 
But having said that, though, we've had very high-profile events like Fees Must Fall. There have been other youth-led protests. Surely this has done something towards raising political awareness among young South Africans. It has. It has. So I believe that the youth in South Africa has unbelievable influence and they'll always have a positive and impactful legacy. So during the hashtag Fees Must Fall protest, I believe they made the country stand up and their voices were heard. They were able to show their peers how influential they can when they work together. As an individual, I believe there's very little that you can do or say. But as a group across the entire country, you can almost change the system. Part of that process, I imagine, particularly when it comes to the vote this year, is what the Independent Electoral Commission is going to do. I'm wondering if you think their efforts are sufficient in promoting uh, voter education uh, among the cohort that you're part of, and if not, what additional steps need to be taken? I don't think they've done the best that they can do. Um, if if they had done the best job that they can do, I don't think we'd be facing this problem. We have a situation where we have 14 million unregistered young South Africans. While we can call out the young people for not doing enough, the IEC needs to accept some of the responsibility in not reaching out to the youth. I don't believe that they've approached the youth on their level. I, it's it's almost like they they use platforms that are possibly populated by the youth but they are approaching them on a level that's much older than that that's much older than them so help me understand this is it the tonality of the messaging that they're employing or are they simply using the wrong platforms i think it's a bit of both so if if you're going to uh probably reach out to a young person i don't think you'd use facebook or maybe Gmail um, advertising, you'd probably use TikTok as much as you can, and you'd use YouTube. So um, you, you need to reach out and be as accessible as you can to the youth. Visit spaces that are frequented by the youth. Go to schools, speak to learners that are of voting age. Just visit rural areas, not just urban areas. Starting on an online campaign is good, but how effective is it if it's only accessible to a certain group of young people and excludes those without a stable internet connection or those who don't have access to, to technology at all? Well, I hope the Independent Electoral Commission is listening. Enza Kuklisabella, thank you very much indeed. I'm Simon Brown, host of MoneyWeb Now. Join me every weekday morning at 6.30 on the MoneyWeb website or the app to kickstart your morning with the most up-to-date business, economic and investing news. I ask CEOs about results, speak to analysts on their favorite stocks and get to understand the inner workings of the economy. Podcast published just after 7. MoneyWeb now with me, Simon Brown, to start your day informed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Now, as humanity undergoes a paradigm shift with identity at the heart, advances in technology are now ushering in a new reality and prompting people to question what it means to be human. That's very existential. Well, that insight is from the global communications company VML and all part of a survey called Future 100 2024. Emma Chu is the global director of VML Intelligence and is with me now. So, Emma, first of all, why are we asking that important question? 
At the moment, there's a lot of technology that's shaping our identities. And I think because of that, we are questioning what makes us human. Increasingly, we're turning to technology to um, look for companionship, uh, for a way to express ourselves, even ways to mirror ourselves. So we're seeing the uptick in digital twins. So people creating replicas of themselves digitally. And it's not about creating an alter ego. Increasingly, it's more about creating someone who better reflects you. But if our digital cells feels like it's more representative of us, then what makes us, our physical selves, us? And I think because of the rapid acceleration of how technology has been over the last you know, four or five years, we're starting to think about now, let's kind of pump, put, a, put in some brakes when it comes to technology and think about mm what makes us human at the end of the day. And um, as we coexist with technology, that's one way of bringing the human out of us, but what can we do um, as individuals to kind of really heighten that? So I think it's more a question about, around identity. And there are two very elegant descriptors around that, aren't there? One is something called the slow living era and something else which is very intriguing called the great deceleration. So how is that impacting on consumer behavior? So the great deceleration really speaks to how the rapid acceleration that's been happening over the past few years, um, we've just been going with the flow and really hoping that by doing so, things will be on the up and looking a bit brighter. Um, But what we've learned is, you know, without putting much thought or without actually thinking about how we want to shape our future, um, this isn't quite working out for us because it seems like year after year, there's something new that's happening that's uh, making life slightly more difficult. And this year feels like it's a year to really reflect and plan in a more long-term way to think about the years ahead versus just this year. And this is why we're talking about the great deceleration. Um, and I think there's another aspect that we, we've been looking at in terms of slow living. And it's not necessarily because obviously when I talk to a lot of clients and colleagues about this, they'd say, I don't feel like my life is slowing down at <laughs> all. And it's not necessarily telling you to slow down. It's just being a bit more intentional and mindful about your decisions and that can have long-term impact. So if people then are becoming more intentional, how do businesses need to adapt to that new paradigm? It's interesting because increasingly the way we're seeing businesses, they're becoming more human. And if people are becoming more intentional and thoughtful and mindful, businesses need to do the same thing. So there needs to be almost a reflection of what people are doing and in what businesses are doing. And with, again, it's not about having more things out there for people to buy. It's about putting things out there that people want to buy and it can add to, you know, benefit them in some way more than just the product that they're purchasing. So perhaps it's elevating their health and wellness. Perhaps it's helping them connect better with their loved ones. So actually adding these sort of human dimensions uh, to whatever the company and brand is putting out there is something that people are wanting more of.
It's difficult, though, for a business in this hurly-burly society to become, as you put it, more thoughtful. How do they do that deliberately? I think a lot of it comes down to long-term planning. So we're not telling businesses that you need to change your business immediately to reflect this. It's if we're aware that this is happening uh, amongst people right now, how can you plan this into your long-term vision? So in the next three, five years' time, how can you create opportunities or experiences or products that reflect this uh, desire and expectation from people? Because when we ran a survey asking people on a global level whether they think the role of a brand has been changing over the past five years, 75% of people said yes. And when we asked what has that changed to, um, you know, and what they want from brands, increasingly it's about, you know, the first thing that came up was make the world a better place. So this is what people are expecting brands to do today. Um, The second is improve people's health and well-being. And the third is create a more hopeful and positive future. So expectations from brands is very much akin to an influential person. You know, we expect these brands to have a bigger role in society and a bigger role in the world. And Emma, finally then, these observations are critical. I'm wondering, though, whether they pertain differently to a developing economy, South Africa, or is the philosophy that you've just explained to me almost agnostic? There are nuances when it comes to different markets. Even though our data doesn't include South Africa, we do have other uh, developing nations that's part of Uh, the survey that have reflected very similar sentiment. Um, So I would say the desire from people may not be that different. However, when it comes to more immediate asks of what they want in their lives, this may vary from country to country. And this is, again, it depends on what locally is more pressing. But I think, you know, when we asked in terms of what people are find, you know, is the most pressing issue in facing society today, what topped the charts globally was cost of living. And I think that is something that is felt around the world. And this was, you know, connected to, uh, you know, looming recessions, sort of inflation, and just economic instability. And I think regardless of what class you're in, or which country you're in, there is that you know, need to think about cost of living. So on the way we report our our Future 100, it is very much about, you know, the broader sweeping sentiment. Um, However, I think there's a lot of things in here that does resonate on a local level as well. Emma Chu, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. The Gauteng Health Department says it's been forced to review the overtime policy for doctors, something that is raising increasing concern about the impact on patients. The Democratic Alliance's Jack Bloom watches the health portfolio in the province and joins me now on MoneyWeb at Midday. Jack, first of all, just some clarity here. Is the policy being reviewed or is overtime being scrapped? Which is it? Well, there was a, it's a national decision and it's being implemented differently as I understand it, different provinces. 
but uh, it's the procedure which is being reviewed, which led to a lot of fear that, in fact, uh, overtime is going to be drastically curtailed. Certainly, that's how uh, the doctors who have contacted me interpret it. Uh, there was a circular by the Gauteng Health Department. What they said is that there's a withdrawal of delegations for the approval of overtime. Previously, the CEO could approve it, and now they apparently want to do it at central level. And as you know, if you do anything at central level, they are going to be bottlenecks and delays and and i can understand uh, why uh, you know most doctors i've spoken to are actually uh, very scared that this is going to curtail uh, um, overtime and i certainly think it's a very cumbersome way to do it and there's certainly going to problems so what what uh, on the face of it is procedural could in effect be uh, a drastic cut in overtime with with all the implications that that has well let's talk about those implications what implication first of all on patients if it happens and second of all on doctors themselves who are already overstretched well, you know, overtime is, is why we have uh, doctors uh, in the evenings and public holidays and over weekends. And, of course, many doctors have come to rely on the extra the extra money. So it's a, it's a blow to them. But the effect on patients could be very severe indeed. And I, I don't know why they want to centralize overtime. It seems to me that it's something that needs to be flexible and, and should be dealt with, uh, uh, you know, as close to, to where it's happening as possible. Possible at hospital level, uh, you know, perhaps there've been abuses, but then you you must fix that up. Uh, uh, you know, where, where the problem is, uh, don't try and make things worse by by centralising it. But I I do suspect that. Uh, uh, you know, in line with the budgetary problems and the mismanagement and, frankly, the massive wastage and corruption, they, they might just be short of money. And and this was supposed to be implemented uh, in the new financial year. So that'll be on the 1st of April. But uh, all I can tell you is that, uh, uh, you know, doctors at large uh, really fear that it's going to cut their overtime drastically and uh, it's going to have a huge effect on the operation of our hospitals. And what are doctors planning to do? Well, I haven't heard any any demonstrations planned. I, I presume that uh, South African Medical Association is taking it up very seriously, and it it does seem to be a, a national directive, but it's implemented differently in different provinces. So, Gauteng, uh, as usual, if I might say, is doing it in a ham-handed way. Look, they have promised in the circular that they are reviewing the operations, but we've heard this before. Uh, when this type of circular has gone out in the past, uh, it's had very dire implications and nobody believes that the Gauteng Health Department manages anything well. So any changes are going to lead to problems. And this, if you're interfering with uh, uh, the smooth operation of overtime, then both patients and staff are all going to suffer. We'll certainly reach out to the Department of Health here in Gauteng, as well as the South African Medical Association. Jack Bloom, thank you very much indeed. Just before I leave you, our online poll today references our top story, the ANC promising 2.5 million work opportunities in five years. Do you think it's doable? Do you think it will mean more unemployment, or is this simply pie in the sky? If you have a view on that, please go to MoneyWeb on X, also on our LinkedIn page. MoneyWeb at Midday, we are live at noon weekdays. We are then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye.
Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.